Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you want to attend a Theology in Raw Exiles in Babylon conference, you need to sign up soon because space is filling up. You can find out all the info at pressandsprinkle.com. The conference is March 31st through April 2nd. You can attend live or virtually. And if you want to support the show, you can do so by sharing the podcast on your social media outlets, leaving a review, or if you want to financially support Theology in the Raw, keep the lights on in my basement. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. My guest today is somebody who I've wanted to talk to for a long time, the one and only Amy Bird, author of No Little Women, Housewife Theologian, Why Can't We Be Friends, and the most recent, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which is the topic that we focus on in this conversation. She's also the author of the forthcoming book, The Sexual Reformation. I had such a wonderful time talking to Amy. She's so thoughtful and gracious and wise and curious. And we talk a lot about her journey in various conversations surrounding biblical manhood and womanhood. So please welcome to the show for the first time, hopefully not the, hopefully the first of many future conversations that we will have with Amy. Uh, please welcome to the show, the one and only Amy Bird. All right, I'm here with uh, Amy Bird. First time meeting you, at least virtually. So thanks for coming on Theology in the Ram. Super stoked to talk to you. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me on, Preston. So uh, for those who don't know who you are, uh, can you give us just a snapshot of who you are? And I really want to focus on, or at least start focusing on your your most recent book, uh, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which <laughs> I'm sorry, that's such a cool title. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 provocative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of the title of my life right now, too. So. <laughs> yeah, so who, who are you? And uh, yeah, then we can get into the book. Yeah, so basically, I'm just a thinking woman in the church who um, was, you know, struggling to find agency as a thinking woman in, in my church. And um, what led me to writing, I never really had a um, ambition to be an author. But um you know, when I got, I got married right out of college, 21 years old, um, my husband and I, both of us come from divorced families and we're the oldest. So we were kind of the first to get married and we didn't want to end up like that. So I, you know, started to take my faith more seriously at this point in my life too. And I just thought, you know, if I'm going to take, uh, this being a Christian thing seriously, um, in my adult life, what does that look like? Um, if Christianity is true, like what can I hold fast to when I don't really want to act like one? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I grow into maturity? Um, how do we have a good marriage? And so I start looking for resources in these areas. And um, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood had uh, all kinds of resources for women's ministries and, and all these things. And they had this book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, And so I just started absorbing all that, you know, reading it. And, um, you know, some of those teachers I'd learned a lot from and uh, really respected. But then some things I was reading in in this book and and some other resources, I just kind of stubbed my toe on. I I just Mm. didn't get it. Uh, And I thought, well, who am I? I'm this newlywed with divorced parents, you know. I want to be a biblical woman. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, um, but I really did struggle as a thinking woman in the church, um, 
to find any kind of space to contribute, to ask questions, to grow in that way, theologically. Um, mm-hmm. it, it seemed to be, you know, men's spaces where those things were happening. So my first book, I really, it came out of a place of loneliness. I was mm-hmm. writing for other women in the church saying, hey, we're theologians too, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I thought maybe offering a tool to get us to think about, like, how what we believe about God affects our everyday living and these questions that we're asking throughout our daily tasks even, um, that there's a theology and meaningfulness and significance behind that. Mm-hmm. And um, that book gave me a lot of different opportunities. I was invited onto a podcast um, to kind of co-host with a, a pastor and an academic, and hmm. I was starting to get speaking invitations at different churches and so each book I've written has kind of been another layer of, you know, yeah. as I'm seeing and experiencing this struggle, you know, what are the theological questions behind these struggles that I'm experiencing? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm noticing now throughout the country, other women, many other women struggling in the same way. Mm. What, was the, what was the name of the first book? My first book was called Housewife Theologian. So All I was right. kind of making an oxymoron type of deal to try to make a point. <laughs> and can you tell us about your church background? What, what kind of church okay, culture? Yeah. yeah. So I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. Okay. And uh, my family, like we were pretty regular attenders, but we didn't like plug into, you know, a lot of the community life in the okay. church, I would say. Um, my parents divorced when I was in high school. So I'm at the time of not being in church. Um, then I put myself back in church. I guess I would say my sophomore year in college, I had kind of been, you know, what those Baptists like to call backsliding. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I just had this moment of, you know, in my head, I was thinking, yeah, I'm a Christian. I knew how to answer the campus crusade questions, you know, when they were setting up their little tables and and asking questions, check that off the box. (laughs) But, um, I just really became convicted that, um, you know, if this is who I say I am, then, you know, I need to take my faith more seriously and I need to learn a lot more than a couple catchphrases um, mm-hmm. that I have. So, you know, that's when I started to get more serious about learning about my faith and uh, started, you know, I went to like a Baptist church there because that's what I knew. Um, wasn't really invited in the community there. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that loneliness, loneliness there as a thinker as well. My husband came from a Roman Catholic background. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were just trying to figure out, you know, what are we <laughs> as we yeah. were getting married and everything. And we started out at a Southern Baptist Church plant. Um, when we moved from the area, we started going to a PCA church, um, Presbyterian Church mm-hmm. in America. We were there for about 11 years. And mm-hmm. I wrote my first book when I was in PCA church and my second one. And then um, when we moved back to this area um, in Frederick, Maryland, um, we began going to an OPC church, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and that's, that's the where more I've conservative been. version, right? I mean, PCA is yeah. pretty conservative. That this is to the right of the PCA. Yeah. That's where I've been until uh, you know this summer, and so now <laughs> we are worshiping in a community church, um, which I'm not even naming at the moment because uh, I've just had so many people harass me and my place of worship. You know, gets intertwined what? into that too. They harass, what do you mean they harass you and why, why would they do that? Well, um, this group of men and women, um, but it was led by some church officers, mainly in my denomination of the OPC, who did not like my writing um, and thought I was dangerous. 
mm-hmm. started, you know, they formed this group on Facebook. Uh, they were, you know, coming after me with anonymous accounts on Twitter and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But they started this group on Facebook where it grew to be about 1,100 members. And it wasn't, it wasn't started because of me. They started it because they were angry with two other women who were writing. Um, but then it became this group where, you know, there was just a lot of, the tone was very misogynistic and, and racist even. Um, and they're just, you know, complaining about all these different Christian teachers. Mm-hmm. And I became like their number one target on there. So they, you know, as it grew over a couple years, they were just like making memes of me. Then it escalated to like calling ahead of my speaking engagements and warning churches and, you know, don't send your people to this conference. Mm-hmm. She's dangerous, you know, to a lot of name calling. I was, you know, Jezebel and a raging wolf and, mm-hmm. um, you know, to picking apart my videos and saying that I look butch and, you know, I'm trying to be a badass now or things mm-hmm. like that. Um, to plotting to uh, sabotage my Amazon page with one-star reviews and just like mailing the book around so that they don't have to buy more copies and helping one another give bad reviews. and um, So that became a whole thing. <laughs> and, how, uh, how did you find, how did you know that? Because that's not something. So it's, it, the history of it's so weird because um, the, the guy who started it originally was a fan of the podcast that I was a part of. And, and, you know, I like followed my writing and liked it uh, until he didn't, <laughs> until we invited a guest on that he didn't approve of. And then that was my fault. And um, then not, my writing became dangerous. Um, so in the beginning, and this was before, like you had to accept an invitation into a Facebook group, mm-hmm. you would just get added into all these groups. Um, I was added into this group in the beginning. And I was added into a bunch of groups that I just didn't pay any attention to until I got tagged. And I got tagged because someone wanted me to see what they were saying about me. And so I kind of entered into that conversation and said, hey, like, you can critique my work, but name calling, you know, you're a church officer. Why would you call me names? And um, a couple people stood up for me. And next thing you know, we all got kicked out of the group. And so I kind of... I knew one of my elders at my church was in there. So I I asked him, Hey, like, can you keep an eye on this? Because, you know, I don't want to cause anything, but these are church officers and these are pastors, you know, this is crazy. Um, but they lead congregations and shepherd people. Um, (laughs) so if this gets out of hand, you know, I'd like to know. He's like, sure. Well then, and this was the most painful part of it. Um, about a year or so after that, a woman who was in the group came to me saying, who I didn't know, um, mm-hmm. she reached out to me saying, I think you need to see what's being written about you on here. It's really concerning and troubling. And she starts sending me screenshots. And it was just like a pure obsession from morning till night, hundreds of comments and multiple, multiple threads. Um, it was just enough to make your stomach turn mm. that somebody would even spend this much time thinking about you, much less hating you. And uh, I was actually on my way to a speaking engagement where they had called ahead of, like I see it all there on this Mm -hmm. screenshots that I I was unaware that they'd caused all this trouble. I was going to go there under suspicion, you know, from the leaders now. Uh, They were making jokes about showing up. 
Mm. Um, so that was kind of scary. Yeah. And come to find out all this time, my elder has been in this group. Oh, he was part of the one that you wanted to keep an eye on it. He was one of the instigators. He was, well, he wasn't instigating, but like there'd be this thread. Like, so I have a book. Why can't we be friends? Uh, someone anonymously took the cover and there's a male and a female cartoon character on there. They took the clothes off of them and made it like fuzzy. And then they changed to why can't we be naked? And, you know, there's this whole thread about that. And my elder comments in that thread answering somebody's random question about the OPC or something, you know? Like, so he was not talking about me, but he's also like reading all this, not telling me about it, not defending me, not, uh, it was just such a violation of trust, you know? How did you feel? What's your emotional response going through something like this? Cause this isn't just a one-off yeah. weird robot, you know, tagging you on Twitter that this is, this is kind of bigger than that. It's weird because, uh, you know, logically, Preston, I know that, okay, there's going to be jerks on the internet. Sure. I've experienced plenty of that. And logically, I can see how wrong this is. Mm-hmm. However, and I have pretty thick skin, like I've dealt mm-hmm. with a good bit of criticism. Um, however, this was a level of harassment that really is spiritual abuse because, you know, these men, a lot of them, were church officers in my denomination and other denominations in Napark. Um, and so to know the power that they have um, and, you know, what, how they're supposed to behave, mm-hmm. um, it, it's actually very traumatic um, to go through. I did not uh, foresee mm-hmm. how traumatic it was going to be for me to go through that. Um, especially because like in the Presbyterian church, I felt like I was in this like safe system mm-hmm. to where, you know, you have these multiple layers of accountability, um, within your church. Uh, you've got your elders who all have equal authority. Um, and then if, if, if you find something wrong there, you can go above them to the presbytery level in your region it's a government. And then above that, even there's the general assembly for the whole, you know, country. So I had, I realized now, and and it unfolded as I tried to address this, Mm -hmm. which seemed pretty basic, um, just how that was a faux sense of security Mm. and that the whole structure of the system, like there's a systemic problem in trying to address abuse. Was this group addressed? Like this is clearly cowardly behavior, clearly anti-Christian. Is there some higher authority that would say, hey, you're going to lose your ministry license or something if you keep acting like a pagan, a cowardly. I mean, it it is cowardice, right? I mean, there's no other word for it. To create a Facebook page without going to the actual person, having a conversation, like that's the epitome of cowardliness mm-hmm. so and all these anonymous accounts yeah I mean, that's, me, you know come on. yeah so that's what i thought right and that's i think um how my elders were trying to address it as well you know um but but what happened you know and there was a group of men and interestingly enough so someone developed a website um called the genevan commons screenshot website i think is what it's called because hmm. the group was called genevan commons um and basically, they cataloged a ton of these screenshots. And they weren't just about me. They were about a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that website came out, I 
put it on my blog hmm. and kind of took some of those screenshots and placed them next to like biblical verses on the qualifications for an elder, <laughs> you know, and I just let it speak for itself, you know? Um, and after that happened, um, a group of men in the OPC wrote an open letter, you know, calling for repentance, this kind of thing. And, and they asked me to publish it on my blog. And I did. And I think over 90 church officers in my denomination ended up signing it. Um, so, you know, at first you think, yes, you know, they're speaking out against this mm -hmm. pretty basic, you know, we should, but that just empowered these men to like, you know, really sink into it. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, so when you, when we tried to address it on an ecclesial level, like actually pressing charges mm -hmm. out of the, I mean, just so much, so much reviling things that they said, mm. the only thing that two of them were only brought up on charges. Um, and it, all, it came down to one man being charged for calling me a raging wolf. Hmm. And that was it. And he got like an admonition for that. And the only reason that charge went through was because, um, so his presbytery was really starting to look pretty bad in all this. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, you know, asking him, can you, he literally gave a sermon as a guest preacher in a church. He gave a sermon on the perfect hatred of God. This was on Psalm 139. Um, and basically in there, he's calling out the signers of the open letter because, you know, the thing that God hates the most is feminism. And he'd already written like a five part series on feminism, in the OPC and how I'm the leader general of the army and all this other stuff. I mean, that sermon ended with like, if you are, embarrassed by my sermon, then, you know, I hate you and God hates you. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I'm shouldn't. Laugh. It's just so ridiculous. It's like Awful. my first response and, is to laugh, but that's terrible. And so for all these things that they were doing, um, I guess this presbytery was asking him, you know, can you be quiet online for now while yeah. working through this stuff? And I went through some major kangaroo court stuff throughout this whole process. So major what? And kangaroo court, oh, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. Ecclesi ecclesial system. And I documented that part of it on my blog. Um, so anyway, yeah. Um, wow. He ended up offending his presbytery by sending a letter to his congregation and kind of throwing his pastor under the bus and the presbytery under the bus. Mm -hmm. That's why he got charges okay. filed against him. And he got two-year suspension for offending the presbytery. Okay. So I, I, I'm super curious, like what, if you can be super objective, like what are the things you are saying or doing that has yeah, created this? Like what I am really, you know, they call me dangerous. Yeah. What, so <laughs> what's, what's the, what, what are the things they're latching on to? Are you, so, um, you know, the recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood does challenge a lot of this teaching that is called biblical manhood and womanhood. Okay. Um, like masculine and, and feminine stereotypes or like, yes. Okay. But really the book, it's an invitation and it has three different parts that break up the book. But, um, the first one is just the reciprocity between the male and female voice in scripture. Mm -hmm. um, the second one is the covenantal aspect to reading scripture and discipleship. And then what our great honor and responsibility and what that looks like in church life as disciples. So my focus is discipleship in all of my books. Um, however, 
what they think is that I want women to take over the church. Okay. <laughs> and nowhere, I mean, I wrote within the bounds of the confessions of the OPC. Nowhere did I write outside the bounds of my confessions. I wasn't even calling for male pastors. I wasn't talking. You know, leadership's an important discussion, but that's just not what my book is about. So you weren't arguing for like women in ministry or anything? I wasn't a focus. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, well, ministry, yeah, but like female pastor ordination, nothing. I didn't write anything like okay. that. Um, but yeah, it's just the agency of a woman as a disciple is, is what is really rubbing them the wrong way. And just as a little bit of background too, back in 2016, um, I don't know if you caught wind of the Trinity debate that happened, but, um, yeah, the council for biblical manhood and womanhood had published, you know, many books and, you know, Wayne Grudem, who was, you know, one of the main founders yeah. in his systematic theology, they teach this errant doctrine on the Trinity, um, called the eternal functional subordination of the son. And they teach that in his very being, the son is functionally subordinate to the father's authority. Yeah. And um, then they take that teaching to somehow say that, and this means that woman is mm -hmm. in her being functionally subordinate to all to men. And um, I exposed that on my blog in 2016 by inviting a man, Liam, Liam Gallagher, a pastor in the PCA, to write against it. And a whole debate started after that. I mm. mean, you can Google the Trinity debate. <laughs> it all comes uh, flowing out. And so, I mean, I think that there was already a lot of tension with me because of that okay. then, because, you know, patristic scholars weighed in with, with this debate, you know, saying that, yeah, this teaching is anti-Nicene, mm. <laughs> this, you know, subordination of the sun stuff. Um, so it, it's not in line with confessional Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, and then why are we applying this to men and women? Um, and so there was a lot that unfolded from that as well. Okay. So you've been you've been so, controversial yeah. for a while. This ain't your first rodeo. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's not. Well, like, that should be controversial to say hate, this. Yeah. <laughs> I hate confrontation and, and those kind of things, but um, it's it's but yeah, it's just kind of ridiculous. Like you don't you don't want to be wrong on the teaching of the Trinity. <laughs> and the crazy part is that, you know, it became, oh, well, you know, we have a wide umbrella of what we teach on the Trinity within Reformed evangelicalism. But uh, what's really important is that you agree to the Danvers statement <laughs> about <laughs> women, you know, which is like, what? How has this become, you know, yeah. the test? Yeah, yeah. Can, can you summarize your book a little bit? So the recovering from biblical man, where, what did you, let me ask this, like how have you shifted in your views from, let's just say 10 years ago to where you are now? How have you grown to what, not to put words in your mouth, but what I, you would yeah. probably say is a more biblical understanding of manhood and womanhood? Yeah. So um, in my book, I'm kind of, how my views have have changed. It's interesting because, you know, I grew up in a family that just wasn't hyper, uh, spastic about <laughs> gender roles. Um, my father taught mar mixed martial arts in our home, you know, so <laughs> me and my brother and my sister, you know, we just had equal expectations as far as, you know, what we could pursue and, and do. And there wasn't this, this weirdness, um, so I experienced that more when I got more seriously involved in the church. 
Um, so that was kind of a weird thing for me. And so I, I think, you know, from my twenties to now I'm, I'm 46, just, you know, growing and trying to understand then what is this, the meaningfulness behind our sexuality. And as I'm looking in scripture, um, it's, it's pretty amazing. There's just so many sections of scripture that, uh, I never was taught. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, as I'm in this book, one thing that was really exciting to me and, and, and one person's work I, I built off of was Richard Balkum from his book, Gospel Women. Mm. He talks about, uh, he, and so he calls it gynocentric interruption, which is like, you know, all <laughs> kinds of fun to use, right? <laughs> so he's talking about how, you know, well, the Bible is this androcentric text and, you know, radical biblical feminists will say, oh, the Bible's put together, you know, by the patriarchy, you know, and yeah. uh, to you know, make women submit. and you know, we kind of balk at that and say that's not true. Mm -hmm. However, um, the way that the evangelical church markets its resources actually does really send that message that mm -hmm. the Bible is so male-centered that, you know, us women need our own versions and our own pretty Bible covers and, you know, all of this to make it more palatable and understandable to us. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I critique that. And I even do a critique of like, you know, with the messages that we're seeing and, you know, why we even have men's study Bibles and women's study Bibles right. and, and what the articles in it tell us about men and women um, and who can contribute in them mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, but then when you look in scripture, so yeah, it is androcentric. We see m the male voice mm -hmm. dominantly in scripture. It was written in a patriarchal time, right? It, by men. Um, however, it's pretty amazing to think of the time that it was written how much of the woman's voice is in scripture mm -hmm. and then what that reveals when we really look at it. And so, um, Richard Baucom kind of talk, he calls it a gynocentric interruption, um, which whenever I use a new term in conversation, my husband then likes to use it a lot of other times throughout the day <laughs> in wrong context. <laughs> a lot of fun with that one. But, um, so he calls it a gynocentric interruption because the woman becomes the center and she's kind of interrupting the text in a, yeah. in a sense. And, and what she does is her voice functions um, kind of making visible the invisible, telling us the story behind the story, mm -hmm. what you wouldn't get from just the male voice. And so he uses the book of Ruth as kind of a model of how this works throughout scripture um, because, you know, it's told really in, in the voice of a feminine narrative. And, and interestingly enough, at the end, you have this kind of patrilineal genealogy mm -hmm. that almost is a complete shift of gears from what you've just been reading. It's almost like it's cut and paste on there. Mm -hmm. And he says that that actually functions to show us, uh, you know, this is the same story that we would have gotten in the male voice, mm -hmm. but this is all that we missed out, you know, the, this whole uh, feminine voice. So I kind of do a survey through uh, the Bible just you know, it certainly isn't comprehensive. I'm just picking some of some stories that stand out to me where we see this woman's voice functioning in this way. And it's just so exciting. I think it, it really does change the way that you read scripture. Mm -hmm. um, so I do the first part of my book, I'm doing that. And the second part of the book, I'm looking at you know, what discipleship even is and where does it happen? Because I think those are some the big theological questions behind a lot of this. You know, we have big parachurch organizations that are quote unquote discipling us. Um, but discipleship really should be happening in the church. Mm -hmm. So 
um, I really kind of examine how, and I like parachurch, mm-hmm. but I just, you know, say that I need one of those like DTRs with the church <laughs> and, uh, and the parachurch to find the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of coming alongside and helping, um, you know, para, mm-hmm. um, we see, you know, this big, money industry mm-hmm. where conferences are actually enacted to be like they are churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where we don't have the modes set up, like you have in church for protection and shepherding and mm-hmm. accountability, you have like board members and, 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 and it even affects like, especially in the complementarian circles mm-hmm. who can speak and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, it's mimicking church, but it's yeah. not church. Right. So I kind of get into that. And, um, and then in the, the last third of the book, I just really get into the nitty gritty of what did the early church look like? Hmm. Um, you know, what are our, our responsibilities and, and our great honor mm-hmm. as disciples, men and women, um, brothers and sisters, which is mm-hmm. what I really kind of break down that sacred sibling relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, take a look at how women are in ministry in the, in the new Testament shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. um, with a lot of the men. Mm-hmm. So is, is it almost like revealing the agency that women have within the biblical story? I mean, not just the Bible story, but just the Christian story um, mm-hmm. almost with, would it be inaccurate to say within a complementarian framework or, or in a way that could obviously exist in more, in more egalitarian context, but even in a, yeah. even if you're like, no, I think first Timothy two, you know, women shouldn't be serving in positions of leadership, even still within that kind of ecclesiology, women can have a lot more agency than they typically have. Is that kind of the underlying? Focus yeah. So or? I was trying to critique within my own circles, okay. which my circles were complementarian circles. However, I did say, I do not call myself a complementarian. I think that it's the name of a movement. It's a movement that started 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of problem connected to, to the movement. Um, mm-hmm. a ton of error in its teaching, <laughs> like too much. So, um, but I don't think that you need to say that you're a complementarian to be within the bounds of confessions of the OPC. So, okay. um, and you know, there w- would be people who agree with me on that. And especially since none of that's written into our confessions. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, I was trying to critique fr- from within Okay. and I, there was a sense in which I wanted to frustrate in a good way both complementarians and egalitarians um, and just to to challenge us, you know, and to, I use a lot, I interact with a lot of egalitarian writers Mm -hmm. um, and, and thinkers. I have really grown and um, been sharpened by them. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to introduce some of those thinkers into the complementarian audience Mm -hmm. because we're just told, Hey, they're all a bunch of liberals, you know, (laughs) don't read them. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, you know, they, like their arguments can't be taken seriously. And, you know, that's where I was finding a lot of the, the more rich and meaningful writing about women in the Bible. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, that was something I was definitely criticized for. You know, I, I used a lot of Roman Catholic references, too, but strangely, mm-hmm. no one was bothered by that. <laughs> it's <was> just <laughs> the fact that I cited some egalitarians. But, um, yeah, so I, I wanted, I was just trying to, you know, one of the things, and it's so hard to do, right, is to get us out of our tribes, to get us out of, you know, these insular thinking tanks and to try to, 
meet and talk about these issues in a mm-hmm. in a way to where there's humility. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm still growing in that area myself and and, yeah. and learning in, in all these ways. But um, mm-hmm. that's that's a challenge. Wow, I I yeah. I love that. There was an article written a while, a while back. I referenced this in another podcast called from, from the edge of the inside. And it's kind of like mm. being within a tribe and yet on the edge of it so that you're able to kind of see yeah. the truth that they, and be able to criticize it from within rather than being at the center of the tribe where you are more an advocate. Like you just have to promote the message because you're so right. ingrained in this echo chamber. And I, I find myself in those spaces quite a bit. Bit, you know, where sometimes yeah. I, I, I'm raise concerns or criticisms of what I would consider. I don't even know what my tribe is. Anymore. Right. <laughs> Christian. I don't know. Um, but, you know, broadly speaking, evangelical ish circles or whatever, but being able to say, hey, here's some problems that we need to work on. And it's it's very much OK to recognize where we need to grow and, and, and correct some things. So I, I'm curious because your book, is it is it common for people to put your book in conversation with uh, Jesus and John Wayne and then Beth Allison Barr's book, the making yeah, of, uh, and then and, and we've done, you know, we've done an interview together and things like that too. Um, because they're, they're like three recent popular books challenging. Right. I don't know what I, how would I would say like, like um, I don't want to say patriarch. I think that word is thrown around too haphazardly, but um, a male, an unhealthy male centeredness of traditional evangelicals and maybe. Um, mm-hmm. It seems yeah, like yours yeah. would be on the more conservative. I, I hate that word too, but um, I know. So mine came out before theirs as well. Okay. Um, and yeah, mine because they're writing from a more egalitarian side of right. things. Um, where I was in the OPC when mine came out. Um, but we've definitely connected through that too. Yeah. Like you know, kind of having our books come out and and around the same time and the different reactions that we've had and the challenges with that. Um, I think it's been a little, some of it's been a little more um, reviling against me because, you know, the, the, the super ultra conservative side of things, you yeah. know, I was just too dangerous. So, um, right. but yeah, I endorsed Beth's book. So, okay. that, you know, that's neat to have that opportunity to do as well. And, um, and Sheila, I'm just, you know, I'm excited that she's, you know, still publishing and writing more on those things. But I, I do think that, uh, and Rachel Green Miller, who's someone else who's written within huh. complementarian circles, um, she wrote a book called Beyond Authority and Submission. Um, and she received a lot of, uh, you know, misrepresentation as well of her writing. Um, What's her name it's again? It's just funny. Even I don't know her. Rachel Miller. Rachel Miller? Mm-hmm. All right, Rachel might get an email from me. This is, I'm, I'm, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she had a, you know a lot of groundwork she did leading up to the Trinity debate as well, okay. and here she is, like this homeschooling mom in the OPC who you know huh. sees trouble, but she you know doesn't want to be associated with, and yet she's you know pretty conservative, and uh, it just yeah. even to say beyond authority and submission yeah like that right there (laughs) is a no-no what what are some ways (laughs) recommendations for pastors let's just say a pastor is complementarian in a complementarian church 
So they're on the more conservative end, and yet they want to create a church rhythm that doesn't devalue the agency of women. Like, what what are some things you could recommend for pastors, leaders in those spaces who are like, I'm not ready to go full on egalitarian, but man, I want to make sure I'm representing Jesus well. Like, what are some blind spots maybe that churches yeah. have? Um, and that is, you know, something that I address in um, my book because at the end of each chapter, really, my target audience for the book is church officers. Okay, and if, if you don't reach the church officers, you're just going to have a bunch of people reading my book and, and be frustrated, yeah. you know? So I wanted them to lead the conversations. So I actually have um, discussion questions at the end of each chapter that, hey, you could lead groups in your church and discuss these things. You might not agree with everything in the book, but where are your stances? How are you thinking through these things? You know, yeah. what can you come together as a church and and address here because mm-hmm. I kind of start the book off with um, this metaphor from a book that was written a while ago called The Yellow Wallpaper, a, mm. a novella. And so I'm trying to do this like peel and reveal thing. And like what you're talking about, these blind spots, mm-hmm. the yellow wallpaper represents these blind spots that we have in the church. And so I think, you know, one thing is to actually be reading women, mm. <laughs> read women authors. Um, it's amazing. You know, I think of how many times have I even heard a woman quoted from a sermon? Hmm. You know, you hear quotes all the time, uh, during sermons, um, usually by men. Hmm. So, uh, you know, one time when I did hear a quote from a woman, it was like, Whoa, you know, looking around. did you guys hear that? Did you see that? That was a woman quoted, (laughs) you know, you never hear that. Um, so, you know, just start reading more women, academics in, in theology, and and I think lay women too, because you know, I think we do need to have these conversations between lay people, pastors, and academics, because you know, academia and, and theology wasn't formed or biblical studies, you know, just so they could talk amongst themselves, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. supposed to trickle down to us, right. and and same with pastors and seminary. Um, so I think that's important. I think bringing women into the room is incredibly important. You know, you if you have male leadership in your church and uh, you went to seminary with mainly men and you were taught by men and um, you're just relying on your wife uh, to learn anything about the women in the church, you're not shepherding your mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think women need to be invited in the room where decisions are made mm-hmm. and listened to. Um, so you can see through their eyes as well mm-hmm. and, and other marginalized people. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some just kind of basic mm-hmm. things. But then I think, you know, looking at your ecclesiology, like how your liturgy goes, um, you know, in first Corinthians, we see, you know, the longest section of any kind of prescribed worship going on. And we see women who are prophesying mm-hmm. during worship and praying, mm-hmm. um, so if your church doesn't allow for that, and, and if you believe in the cessation of, you know, supernatural gifts, like prophesying, well, then how would that translate today then, you know, yeah. re- reading scripture? Um, if your ecclesiology doesn't allow for that, then how are you more complementarian than the mm. early church in the New Testament? Um, so I think there are some things in, in that way, too, to look at. Um, are women, and here, here's where I got in a lot of trouble, um, are women allowed to teach in the church? Um, b- beyond middle school 
children <laughs> or right. other women. You know, and you see like Wayne Grudem has this list of, you know, what should women be allowed to do in the church kind of thing. And he draw, and it's all based on the level of influence she'll have. And so he encourages you to draw a line and under that line, women can serve and above that line, she cannot. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see the order of things on the line. So like uh, contributing to a woman's study Bible is above, you know, writing a book about biblical doctrine. <laughs> or teaching a woman's Bible study, or I say below, I'm sorry. Teaching a woman's Bible study is below um, teaching a high school, Sunday school class. <laughs> so, you know, it's just like, oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. This is our very dignity that we're talking about here. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and this is what people are reading and yeah. listening to. I think, so. I mean, complementarian churches would still have I can't speak for all of them, um, but like just theological problems with a woman teaching, right? I mean, that would still, although now I feel like more and more churches that would still consider themselves complementarian would say male only elders, but women can teach. That seems to be growing in popularity that I have several friends who are like, yeah. I just still see some kind of male headship in the church, whatever, but they have women teach on, on a Sunday underneath right. kind of the authority. Of the do you see that view kind of growing in popularity or? Well, I do. However, here's the thing. <laughs> I see that view growing and I felt like, you know, I'm writing within the space of, cause you, I think a lot of complementarians and I'm using air quotes here mm-hmm. would say that that's the dominant view. However, the loudest voices and the teaching voices, you know, in all the resources don't teach that. Or the ones who strongly don't teach that platform, you they platform with all these guys. Mm-hmm. And so um, you're giving credibility to something very demeaning, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Very flattening. Um, and, and so I feel like if we're not going to speak out against it, mm-hmm. it, you become complicit in, in the way that it's spreading. You know, you know where it's almost... Um more telling is I've talked to several people who are in e- egalitarian denominations. I'm not going to name mm-hmm. them. I could, but I, I'd just rather not. But um, mm-hmm. let, let me just say there, there's one denomination that's, that's really widespread where I am in Idaho. The denomination is on paper. It's been egalitarian since its inception. But you talk to people in the denomination, they say, yeah, but can you name me one single female pastor in any church here in, in the area? There might be a couple, but it's like, to me, that's almost worse when you have theological, not just permission, but like encouragement for mm-hmm. women to be in ministry. And it's still right. 95% male, let's just say 85% male senior pastors or whatever. To me, that that's because if, if you're like theologically, I can't get there. Then it, right. it's like, well, obviously, you're not necessarily being like misogynistic necessarily yeah, because you're driven by theology. And contrary to how most people might think like I do think no, I don't think I read the commentarians misogynistic. Um, there are some really healthy commentarian churches, I think. Um, but it's don't you? I mean, it seems like worse when you have theological yeah, encouragement and still it's male yeah. dominated. I, I've heard that a lot actually, and I've even been. Um, you know, sometimes I get um, asked to consult with different uh, church leader governments and in, in local churches um, to talk about that very thing. Um, and I, I have been for a church that was egalitarian. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and yeah, they were having these same issues, mm-hmm. which was interesting because, you know, here I was then in the OPC, you know, and I was speaking at their women's uh, conference and yeah, they wanted to bring me in and ask me, pick my brain about some of, <laughs> because I, I've also, I've written another book called No Little Women where I kind of, I, you know, I felt like I really, it was an encouragement to invest in the women in complementarian churches. Mm. And, um, even that one was received better than mm. <laughs> recovering. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're, I mean, recovery has been overall well received, right? I mean, of course, it's always easy yeah, to listen I, to the loud criticism, but right? it, I, it, it sold. It has sold well, and I've gotten you know tons of messages of you know how it's been edifying for different people. Okay, but um, you know, the ones that that didn't like it were very mm-hmm. uh, verbal mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. So. One of the things I've seen that, uh, well, one complementarian church in particular was it was Cornerstone, where I used to serve on staff with, that Francis Chan used to be at. When he, um, we used to have, uh, I think it was on Tuesday or Thursday. Who, sorry, after after Francis left the church, we went to a team teaching model and as part of the team teachers, and we would always have like I think it was either Tuesday or Thursday kind of a two hour kind of sermon prep meeting where whoever's preaching that Sunday would have kind of a rough draft of where they're going with their sermon, maybe an outline or something. Some, here's some illustrations and we would sit together and talk about it. Okay. Like all the teachers would be like, all right, let's fine tune this, which by the way, I can't imagine like ever being in a consistent preaching rotation or, or rhythm where you're not where you don't have some sort of small group airing out your thoughts ahead of time. If you're a preacher and you're just like single-handedly preparing and preaching on Sunday, I would highly recommend building some kind of team. But so very strongly complementarian church, women did not teach on Sunday morning, yeah. at least back then. I don't know if they, they probably still don't. I don't know. Um, but one thing we did do is we started inviting maybe as one woman, maybe as a couple into that conversation and that was mind blowing. This is like 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And yeah. it just blew us away because we're like, oh, we're going to talk about this, this, and this illustration. And the woman's like, um, here's how a single mom's going to hear that profoundly unintentional yes. misogynistic language you're using right now. We're like, and all these guys were like really <laughs> humble since we were just like, I am so, I feel like I need to apologize for the last like 15 years of preaching because just didn't even, <laughs> I just didn't screen right. my thoughts with a woman present before I went and talked. This is something like you can be full on capital C complementarian. There is zero violation as I see it in the most stringent reading of, well, sorry, the most conservative reading in first Timothy two, where you can't have a woman, a woman or women help you organize your thoughts around the sermon. Am I right? I mean, is that, that's something I think. Well, I would agree with you, except for the fact that, um, you know, there are men who you know, seminaries even teaching that no women can't imp- offer input in that kind of way. Really? Okay. Yeah, but um, I will say that that is just that is fabulous. I was asked once to to give a talk, um, you know, related to this, to give a talk at um, RTS in DC in a preaching communications class mm. on preaching to women. Yeah. And the professor has said to me, you know, the reason why he invited me was because, and I'm I live near the DC area, so. Okay. It, only like a 45 minute drive for me to get there. But, um, he was saying that, um, he had been preaching for five years before he realized he wasn't preaching to the women. 
Wow. So, you know, he was older now and, and I'd spoken at, um, spoken at his church. So that's why he ended up inviting me. But, um, you know, it just really makes you think, right. That what you're saying, like you have one pair of eyes, right. One way of, of seeing things, but then you have all these other people in your congregation and, and we could divide it up in other ways too, like class and, and race and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so it was a, it was a, you know, I really appreciated that opportunity and, and that's a more urban area anyway. So these right. are, are men who I think are more hip to wanting to, to do that. But, um, you know, it was funny because it was some of the really practical things that I talked mm-hmm. about that I saw them really writing notes on, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I found really interesting. And some of those things, and the, he, these are things that women notice is, you know, are you even making eye contact with the women when you're preaching? Because a lot of preachers are very uncomfortable with that. Really? That's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, men won't notice that, but women notice it. You know, when you're never yeah. making eye contact with me, you know, it's, it's, you notice it. Or, or how are your illustrations? Are, do you have the typical stereotypes playing out in yeah. your illustrations? You know, those kind of things. And wow, what a neat thing to do, though, to have that, that think tank group and be able was, to... yeah. Get feedback. I hate this. I mean, it's so embarrassing to say, even say this, but it was revolutionary for us. And it's like, why is that so like, it's like, it's almost, <laughs> it's almost embarrassing to say, wow, that was so profound. I listened to a, a woman's voice before I prepared my sermon. But um, yeah, it really was. It was like, I have so many, and it opened up, I mean, you mentioned class and race. It opened up just so many other blind spots. It's like, oh my gosh, right. like, mm-hmm. yeah, th- this is where I just, yeah, going back to, I just, we need to be like, 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 like developing sermons, I think in more community, um, I, uh, we're coming up on almost 50 minutes here. I want to make sure I get to your, your forthcoming book, uh, the sexual revolution, um, reformation, the reformation, reformation, reformation. Sorry. Sorry. Um, okay. can you tell us, yeah, where, where are you? Are you still in the writing process? Is it done? And oh no, you... it's actually releasing in March. March oh, right on. 8th, Sweet. Or, yeah. So it means you um, probably so, finished yeah, it like two years ago. <laughs> <Yeah>, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> i got to relearn everything I wrote yeah. for my interviews. But yeah. um, yes, I'm really excited about this book. Um, I feel like my books kind of build off of one another. Like, you know, they open up the door to more questions right, mm-hmm. as I'm, I'm writing those books. And, and my experiences that I went through with recovering really led me to the Song of Songs. I mm-hmm. mean, it just ministered to me in the deepest um, way hmm. as I was, you know, cause I really went through about two years of, you know, friction in my, in my denomination and my church and, um, you know, working through all that, uh, the song of songs just really deeply ministered to me. And so, um, you know, what I wanted to do was write more and the subtitle is called restoring the dignity and personhood of man and woman. And that's what, you know, I was really aiming to do is to get to the theological meaning behind our sexed bodies as man and woman. Hmm. And uh, the Song of Songs is just telling this meta narrative of all of scripture of Christ's spousal love for his bride. Hmm. And um, so I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm writing this again, looking at it from the angle of a disciple. Hmm. What does this mean for discipleship in the church? So um, I get into the typology of man and woman there, hmm. um, which, you know, when, when you're looking at the song, um, you know, which is called the Holy of Holies of Scripture by, you know, the ancient rabbis and early yeah. church fathers. And it really is like, it's like you, you get in behind the veil and it, 
uh, all of your senses are aroused in the mm-hmm. song, you know, your taste and smell and touch. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it is an erotic book. Like, why is it, why is it like this? Mm-hmm. And I think that there is this um, sense in which you can't, when we're talking about God's love, you can't just didactically teach, you know, mm-hmm. these propositional statements about God's love and, and get it all. Right. Um, and, and so I think that this, this poetry and allegory is, is sweeping us in, in a way and beckoning, beckoning us and arousing us mm-hmm. um, to, you know, really properly orient our desires. And, and we see desire restored in the song. And we see this playfulness in the voices. Like I really uh, have a whole chapter on the, the man and woman's voices in the song. And, um, it's dominantly, you know, over 60% the woman's voice. Mm. Um, and so what does that say about love and, and leadership and those kind of things? Um, she bookends the song. She opens it and she closes it out. Mm. And she closes it out beckoning her groom to the mountain-laden spices ice-laden mountains that her body represents. You know, she's beckoning him to Zion. So, I mean, I just, I'm really excited about this book. Um, It just, it swept me away to write it. And so I really hope that it just really gets readers um, super excited about digging into the song. Once you dig into the song, like it's all, it's like a microcosm of all of scripture. And there's so many echoes of the song Mm -hmm. throughout God's word. So I I just find it really exciting. Is it like a theology of sex or more sex embodiment or both and or? um... Uh, I I guess you could say both and. Okay. um, Because the song is, you know, these enfleshed bodies. And I Mm -hmm. think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. I'm excited. Yeah. I might email your, wait, you publish with Zondervan, right? Zondervan again. And they have the um, the advanced reader copies out now. Okay. Yeah. I'll reach out to them and get a copy. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, uh, Oh shoot. I had a thought it just flew out of my head. Um, hate when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what would you hope to see? Let me see how I can word this. What would you hope to see in specifically like complementarian church? What does healthiness look like in your opinion um, in more conservative complementarian, complementarian-ish churches? Um, yeah. yeah. Like what are some changes um, you would like to see made within that framework? Yeah. I mean, I think that's some of what I was writing about in recovering. Um, and I think one of the hardest things is to be a part of the conversation Mm-hmm. as a woman. And, and it's extremely, uh, disheartening mm-hmm. and, and frustrating. It's like, uh, you know, the, I don't know what part of me, you know, thinks I should write a book called smoking in the boys room <laughs> because that is pretty much <laughs> what I discovered, uh, that I've been doing this whole time trying to be a, a woman thinking in complementarian spaces. You know, the reason why I can't get in yeah. into these conversations is because I'm in the boys room. Right. Yeah. Um, But, uh, so I think there are some real problems and I don't even know, like now where I am, um, I just want, I don't want to limit my audience to complementarian churches because I think I just want to talk. I want to be in conversation with people who really care about this and whoever they are. (laughs) And so, you know, I feel like, you know, I've written books 
answering that question and, and going into, for me, what really matters is the theology behind it, yeah. it all. You know, I'm not one to just take a Bible verse and then slap people with it. You know, like okay. I, I want to get to the theology excites me. Um, and so, and, and I do think, you know, with, you know, with this, the book I'm doing, have at, coming out on the song, it's just, to me, blows my mind that the triune God um, is a personal God who mm-hmm. created us as people, persons, and, and that he is inviting us into eternal communion mm-hmm. with himself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this whole story of that unfolds in the typology of man and woman of um, the father giving the son a bride. Mm-hmm. He loves him so much that he gives him this gift of the bride and that sharing in the father's love for the son mm-hmm. and the spirit, mm-hmm. that's what it's all about, yeah. you know? So um, our bodies tell that story. Uh, woman's, you know, in her typology, uh, we're an eschatological marker. We're created second. We're not created from the soil. Mm. Um, we are beckoning man to his telos as Christ's bride. And so we represent realm and people. You know, we see that picture in, in Revelation the bride coming down the holy garden city, you know, Hmm. woman. Hmm. Um, And and we see that played out so much in the Song of Songs. Hmm. And then man, you know, typologically representing, you know, earth. We're going to have the union of heaven and earth, Um, you know, new heavens and a new earth. And this union points to the the union of Christ and his bride. And a man typologically represents the second Adam. You know, Christ Hmm. is masculine. Mm-hmm. And he's the first to love and the first to give and the first to sacrifice. Mm-hmm. We see that in the story of creation. We see that in the incarnation. Um, Christ leaves his bridal Zion, our motherly Zion, home and father, to come down and cling to his bride mm-hmm. and usher her on the veil. Uh, um, lo- everything you're saying, you're 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 riding that balance between maintaining both equality and yet honoring sex sex difference and sometimes i feel like a lot of people get out of whack on Mm -hmm. to get equality they try to downplay difference people that seem to acknowledge or upplay difference sometimes fall into inequality but that that is it that is a um a theological dance that's sometimes tough to maintain i've always been a little bit troubled roles you know and getting caught up in all these cultural mores i mean i think that's a a theology from below really and Mm. it only leads to shame Hmm. And so for me, I really want an answer to your question. I just want to awaken this eschatological anchoring of our sexuality. And um, I think that's a theology from above and that leads to glory. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's just super exciting. Can you unpack that a little more eschatological anchoring? Because I, that's, I kind of know what you're talking about, but I can <laughs> yeah. imagine some people saying, well, it's I this don't know very what... thing that I'm talking about is um, our typical symbolic representation as man and woman. Mm-hmm. which is pointing to our telos. It's pointing to where we're headed in a uh, covenantal union with Christ in new bodies on a new heavens and a new earth. And, and the relationship that is going to pass into this new world is brothers and sisters. You know, mm-hmm. we're brothers and sisters with mm-hmm. one another. And uh, Christ is our elder brother. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I really think is like having our eyes on where we're headed. And I think that's the whole meaningfulness behind our sexuality is it's telling this story. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a glorious story. And so like even Pope John Paul II, I, I build on his work some too, but he talks about the glory of God in the human body mm. and the glory of the human body before God. And I think it's because of this story, mm. you know, that our bodies speak. Mm-hmm. And so I really believe in all of this, you know, Christ is just preparing our souls for love. Yeah. Wow. Who, who, what are some theologians in light of all the things you're talking about right now? Like, who are some theologians you've drawn on that you find helpful? J, uh, JP2, you, you mentioned. Yeah, I definitely. Um, others? And, you know, I definitely was, you know, looking uh, a lot of the early church fathers, uh, commentary and homilies on the songs. Okay. Um, on the song, I should say, Gregory of Nyssa, Origen. Um, I think. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila, you know, she was an an interesting one. Um, John Owen, uh, you know, his communion with God, really, he he gets into the song there. Um, Ellen Davis, she's one of my favorite commentaries on the Song of Songs. It's not a very big commentary, but I keep unpacking more and more out of that. And there are some more interesting, um, more academic theological books coming out on the song as well. Um, okay. I don't have the names in front of me of all of those, but I'm reading one right now on absence and presence of God in, huh. in the song and in Esther, which is I've kind of been dipping into that one here and there. Or what about just, just the like theology of male, female, sexed embodiment and, and how to yeah. understand that theologically. Are there some theologians that have done good work there that you've drawn on? Yeah. So JP two has been, I would say my, my biggest go to, um, Timothy Tennant, he's a Methodist. Yeah. He's written a book on that, but just came out with Zondervan not too long ago. I don't have the title. Yeah. Um, I've read that one. Um, yeah, I forgot it too. Sorry. Sorry, Timothy. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, one's really good. Um, Christopher West, a Roman oh, Catholic yeah. who's builds off of, um, JP two's work a lot. Um, you know, I think that stuff got me ignited more into mm-hmm. this. Um, so yeah, off the top of my head, that's who I'm thinking of right now. I've been excited. I, I, I wanted to explore kind of the, Oh, what term should I use? Like the teleology, the teleology or the, um, yeah, the deeper theological purpose of our sex embodiment. So this, so the, the last book I wrote was in, on like um, called Embodied on the transgender mm-hmm. conversation, which dealt a little bit with uh, theological anthropology. Like, and and I made I, I I made a distinction between the the is and the ought. Like, uh, I don't, how deep do I want to go here? A, a friend of mine who's super thoughtful challenged me on something I said in the book, and he made a statement that could there be a built-in Oughtness, meaning some sort of moral, um, uh, moral, not mandate, but just like some moralness in our very existence as male and female, so that our bodies are actually speaking to a, an ethic of sexuality. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, it was it was something he said that I'm like, ah, I want to dig into that more. And I know this is more typical in Roman Catholic scholars. Um, it is who deal, I think, in a better way with like natural, like a theology of natural law, so to speak. And I don't know, a lot of stuff you're saying is exactly what he was saying. You know, I'm like, oh, I really do need to dig into this a little, <laughs> a little, a little more. Um, yeah, I did find um, Roman Catholic theologians to mm-hmm. have, you know, have a lot more resources available in, mm-hmm. in that line of thinking. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did, goodness. Like I said Ellen Davis, she she gets into like the representation of 
of the woman in the song of, you know, her body hmm. is temple, you know, in there. So sanctuary. So she gets into that a little bit too, which I like. You know, what's interesting is in Genesis two, and this is something I mentioned in my book that, you know, there's a mistranslation that she's taken from the rib of the man. Right. But that's the, the word translate. I forget what it, what it is, but that word is, oh. it's always used to translate the side of like a tabernacle or temple. I know, like isn't side. that so exciting? Oh yeah. So there's, Ryan. there's this profound equality there. Like she's taken from the side of Adam, not his head. Mm-hmm. So she's not over right. him, not his feet. She's not under him, but the side of him and her body's sacred. It's, 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 it's like a sacred tabernacle. Um, taken from the side of Adam, and and you've got the woman in the song saying, "I am a wall." Oh, is that the same word? And my breasts oh. are towers. Oh wow, interesting. There, um, oh, uh, Davidson, the flame of Yahweh, a sexuality in the oh, Old yeah. Testament. Did you? Because he's got a whole section on the Song of Songs and how it's related back to all like Genesis one and two. Really yep, fascinating. Yep. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely in conversation with yeah. the creation story. Did, did you go to seminary? <laughs> no, I'm a lay, I'm just a lay theologian thinker. Um, and that's the thing I think that's really kind of blown my mind, you know, from, you know, my whole quote unquote journey in this is that, you know, I just, where does a thinking woman hmm. get discipled in the church? And, and that has to be like the only answer <laughs> is seminary, you know, like I just thought that this was discipleship and yeah. So, and then it's like women who go to seminary, well then, then they have to struggle with being a woman in seminary. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, the question is where do women go to be discipled? That is a fascinating category. Cause it's one thing if if a woman goes goes to seminary, then you kind of assume they're probably egalitarian, going to try to go to ministry or maybe academia. But what do you do with somebody who hasn't, professionally pursued a ministry yeah. career and yet is reading Richard Bauckham and JP two and Christopher West and Ellen. <laughs> I can't believe you mentioned Ellen Davis. I don't, most, most lay people are not yeah. going to know even who she is. Um, but profound well, Old Testament scholar. What I get excited about too is, you know, uh, with my first uh, recovering was my first book with Zondervan and they tried to do the end note thing, you know, when, when my first round of editing, editing came and I'm like, and we all know there's no end notes on the new heavens and the new earth. Like footnotes is where it's at. <laughs> but I also want them to be footnotes, even though she's like, well, we you know, wanted you to go to a more popular audience. And I'm like, yeah, but I want the popular audience to look down and say, where'd she get that from? And lead them to like better thinkers than me, right? <laughs> you know, introduce these other um, more academic yeah. authors. I, I, I hate endnotes and my last several books have all been endnoted. Oh, but they, they did it for me. They put them in the footnotes. Really? Yeah. You yeah. Because the, the, <laughs> the thing is like the, the, I don't even, I think it's true. I don't know. Like, like anything that has footnotes just has a more academic flair to it. 90% yeah. of people reading it aren't going to look at the footnotes anyway. And it just looks less inviting. One for the 10%. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it's, yeah. My, my last book had, I think, 40 pages of endo. There was like, um, oh my. The book was like 60,000 words, and I think I had like 20,000 words in the endnote. So, so maybe, wow. I don't know. Um, maybe that's why. <laughs> maybe that's why. Yeah. Yeah. But my next one, I feel like I do want to go back to footnotes because I, I just can't, yeah. I don't, I can't stand it. Like, stand who, it. 
I hardly, I mean, I love, I always, if there's footnotes, I will always, my eyes are bouncing up and down. And I feel like as a writer, like one, I want to bring the, you know, bring these people into their regular world now and say, oh, here's somebody I haven't heard of, you know, maybe I should, you know, I like what she quoted from that person. But I also want to show that when you write a book, it's you're in conversation with all these people, right? Right, Like your work is so connected to all these other people. So I think it shows it better in the footnotes. I wonder with the concern recently of fact checking, you know, we have professional fact checkers and I don't know who's fact checking the fact checkers, but I I wonder (laughs) if, if that seems, I wonder if footnotes will come back as more common with more and more people asking a question, well, wait, where did you get your information from? I mean, this might be the one healthy by one of the only healthy byproducts of our extreme polarization today is people are like, yeah, but what study did you cite? You know, and will this study (laughs) critique that? Do you think, I mean, I wonder if more popular just audiences are getting concerned with fact checking. I mean, I guess I talk to more, you know, about this thing to people who are readers and, you know, more serious readers, but, um, and I guess that would be more of my following on Twitter anyway, but yeah. I remember tweeting when I had this conversation with my editor that, oh, yay, I, you know, was able to change my editor's mind because we all know that uh, there are no endnotes on the new heavens and the new earth, you know, like that argument won. <laughs> and I got so much interaction from that saying like, yes, you know, we hate endnotes. Really? Thank you. You know, thanks for huh. doing us this favor. Um, so, of course, that might speak more towards the type of people who follow me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I would, you know, I, I might do a Twitter survey or something. I mean, it's, it's confirmation. Yeah. It's, it's a little biased. Like people that would follow me or you would probably be more on the intellectual side. And, and I do understand that publishers have a tough job. I mean, they, they, it, you can't get around the fact that publishers have to pay attention to the market. market. It is consumer driven. They have to pay the bills. They need to sell books. Yeah. And, it's hard to, and and as you know, as a creator, I'm like, no, I want to paint my own ground. I want to do this. I want to. I want to produce good right. art and and good work. And screw the masses. I don't want to use know. a title that's going to make everyone hate me. <laughs> yeah, but they're like, well, we still need to sell the book. So, and I I get that. It's a tough. It's a super tough balance. But um, yeah, footnotes. I'm, I'm gonna. Hmm. I might go back. To footnotes. <laughs> yeah, do the survey. Yeah, Amy, I. I've taken you more than enough time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. So again, just to mention the books again, um, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood is your most recent book. Your forthcoming book, which you can pre-order now on Amazon. All the links should be in the show notes by now. Uh, The Sexual Reformation. Amy, you're awesome. Thank you so much. It was great getting to know you for the first time. stimulating conversation. I had a really good time. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, me too. So we'll have you back on sometime for sure. Wonderful. Sounds good. 